Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome back to Unheard, I'm Freddie Sayers. As actual war erupts in the Middle East here in the West, the equivalent culture war is raging. The political left seems to be aligned with Palestine, occasionally with Hamas, depending on who you ask, and the right has found itself in lockstep with Israel. A conversation which began with complex questions of statehood and religious destiny has now apparently been overtaken by the normal culture war. But how did we end up here? To try to answer this question, we're going to do something a bit different and have two sections. In the first section, we're going to bring on James Lindsay. He is a writer and self-described professional troublemaker. You will know him from his extremely popular Twitter or X account, amongst other things, he, we've just gone to the ARC conference in East London and fished him out and brought him here to the studio. We're going to ask him to lay out his narrative of how he thinks what he calls the woke left now identifies with and has intellectual heritage that is intermingled with Hamas and the Palestinian side. Then in the second part, we're going to bring on unheard contributor and Marxist political analyst Aaron Bastani not someone who is normally found in the same room as James Lindsay, and we're going to see how that goes. We're going to ask him for his version of events, why he thinks the left finds itself on that side, and then maybe there might actually be some dialogue between the two of them. That would be interesting. Let's start, James, with you, because you've been very active on Twitter, as always. You're doing multiple posts per hour, sometimes it feels like. Essentially, you have been making the case that what you call the woke left, have found themselves in a situation where they are now defending Hamas. Mm -hmm. And you've been tracing what you see as the kind of intellectual lineage, how they got from there to where they are now. Try and talk us through your argument. The Palestinian Liberation Project, let's just start with the word liberation. What does the word liberation refer to? Well, this was the kind of uh, it refers to or referred originally to kind of uh, communist liberation. And this was a term that got used to a lot of third world projects that were either helped along or informed or sometimes directly uh, involved with Marxism throughout 
South America, uh, South Asia, Southeast Asia in particular. I mean, what were, what were the Viet Cong? They were a liberation army. What was going on when, under Che Guevara? There was a liberation front anywhere you look. Well, in the roots kind of politically behind Hamas, previous to Hamas, you have the, and behind the PLO in particular, Palestinian Liberation Organization, there's that L again. You have also the popular front, that's communist terminology, the prop popular front for the liberation of Palestine, so the PL, PFLP. And this is really a project of the globalist, or the global left. And as a matter of fact, it was a project of the Soviets. The, the PFLP, the Popular Front for Liberation of Palestine, was a USSR Marxist-Leninist project that was brought into the Arab world, into the Middle Eastern world, uh, in particular to answer the West's incursion in 1948 with the establishment of Israel uh, in uh, in the region. So there, there's actually history there. Is what there's you're saying. actual it's not just an leftist the activism idea. that underpins what's going on, and so the philosophical currents turn out to share in common for whatever reasons, largely that there tends to be in kind of a reactionary Islam, a very uh, prominent anti-Semitism that flares up. It turns out that a lot of Arabs were very sympathetic to the Nazis in the 1930s. The Nazis were not necessarily attempting to work with this at first, but they discovered it. So the history I've read goes. And in 37 or so, they brought over an Iraqi who started to do radio for the Nazis, specifically for the Arab world, and was starting to feed this kind of propaganda in there. Now, a lot of people would argue that the Nazis are a far-right movement, but I still think that they're blatantly a, well, not, it's in the name, socialist, but a, a progressive Movement. They had this concept of a perfectible society that could be made perfect through the uh, machinations of dialectical materialism or dialectical effort. I feel like that's a whole other case. If, you, if we were going to discuss whether the Nazis are perfect, that's a whole other let's, case. Let's leave that yeah, I want to leave that. I just but wanna, what you're saying is what there's I an say anti-Semitism is, there. Well, no. What, I'm, what I want to say is that there was an incursion of romantic nationalistic idealism, in other words, European philosophy that underpinned fascism, communism, and Nazism in various ways into the Arab world starting in the 1930s, a very deliberate propaganda push that, you know, Britain has occupied the area of Israel before it became Israel. Uh, the French are in Syria. We're going to drive them out. The Germans, however, are your friends. That was the, the, the mode of the Nazi propaganda coming in there, which also tapped into anti-Semitic themes. So you had this Again, the point isn't anti-Semitism or not. The point in this case is that you have romantic idealism, which is this fusion of kind of left-wing French and German thought getting injected into the region under the Nazis. And then this in the 40s and especially 50s, you find Jean-Paul Sartre going and visiting. You find him, his philosophy catching a lot of current. Even Simone de Beauvoir, the feminist, is, you know, talk of the town in the Arab world. And you see this injection again of Marx and Lenin. And eventually, after he starts writing a little later, Franz Fanon, the, the, this is your post-colonialist kingpin, I suppose, the, the post-colonial, the father of post-colonial thinking, who wrote His Wretched of the Earth in 61, Sartre with his famous foreword, and as a letter to Europe about what to do with the colonized nations and saying that we have to, that, that the colonized have the right to, we'll use the word of today, resist by any means necessary and including by violence to reclaim not just their land, but their sense of who they are. And so this is getting flooded in this very violent decolonial project. And then it's eventually, of course, one of the biggest theorists later writing primarily in the 70s, we have Edward Said, who took 
Franz Fanon's work and blended it with Michel Foucault, a French postmodern theorist, and had the, all of these ideas. Well, he was Palestinian-American as it was working in an American university, creating ties between these leftist identity studies departments, and in this case, uh, post-colonial departments. And, and they didn't, he wanted to stop calling them Orientalist departments and start calling them you know, Middle Eastern studies or whatever, and creating this tie back and forth and this flow of information. So these things were popular and powerful intellectual currents in the Arab world that started to get channeled into this distinctly Islamic nationalist idea that was already being championed by the Muslim Brotherhood, from which Hamas ends up splintering off and so becoming its thing. You could say, though, some of those ideas, romantic idealism, a sense of reconnecting with the, with the earth, finding your identity to throw off people who would do you ill, could equally be said of the Zionist project, of the creation of Israel. I mean, you can find a lot of Marxist ideas inside Israel, the, the whole kibbutz movement. There's a lot of a lot of those same threads are happening on the other side of the border. Well, we could go back to Hegel, couldn't we? Um, so Hegel, I, I don't want to characterize Hegel originally philosophically as left-wing. As a matter of fact, I think you know most leftists would disagree with that characterization and would, would do so correctly. Although when I was out in the Palestine rally, that was taking place here in London last Saturday. Outside of every tube stop, there were these these stands for the UK Socialist Party, Workers' Party, or whatever. And I'm not saying that they organized the, the event or coordinated or any of that. But they were maybe opportunists, maybe they're affiliated. I don't know. I don't know what their purpose was. But I did talk to a Marxist, one of them, who was very open that he was proudly a Marxist. And he said that he was actually veering away from Marxist theory and into Hegel and found that Hegel was more of kind of the real kind of the real deal for what they were looking mm -hmm. for. And I thought, well, that's very interesting. But Hegel was Hegel can be taken in a, in a left-wing direction or a right-wing direction either way. But why and, is well, why am I bringing this up? I, I'm because asking why, but what, do you not also observe those ideas in the early part of the 20th century being part of the Israel project? That's what I was getting to. I think the entire neoconservative project is the right wing of that in the modern world. And so if we see neoconservative nation-building projects in general, including injecting something like Israel, whatever other claims on, on the land that there is, if we see some of the you know heavy backing from the nation builders in, in the Western you know, masters of the universe circles, you can see that the same kind of philosophy is actually infused within that as well. As an American, I'm you know very proud of this these concepts of like our Declaration of Independence and our Constitution, and which are, are kind of quite distinctly not that. In fact, there's sort of the abject rejection of this project that our federal government has also taken up, you know, full-throatedly and for, for many decades with much destruction, often on the side of the liberation movements, but obviously also like in Vietnam against them, depending on the circumstances. So when did it come to pass that the kind of Palestinian side was considered the left-wing side? And why didn't it happen? that the Israeli cause was championed by the left? Well, I think in, in particular, it's a good question why the Israeli side wasn't championed by the left, but I think they started to associate it with neoconservatism, uh, especially as time went on getting into the 70s and 80s, very strongly. And a lot of today's left. Why don't you just define that for us? Neoconservatism. Yeah. So this is sort of, you know, you had this split in the 60s. You were talking like, you had Mr. Conservative Barry Goldwater, aka CIA guy, um, that created this new movement in conservatism that had split off from what they pre started to call the paleoconservative movement. So the neoconservatives are interested in 
in many respects, empire building. It's more about empire than it is about, you know, uh, individual rights or, or even the promises and, and guarantees written directly into our founding documents, like the Declaration of Independence and Constitution in the U.S., their goal was, in fact, sort of foreign adventurism to make our agenda be driven around the world. I guess Ronald Reagan becomes sort of its its shining pillar, you know, the shining city on a hill. Francis Fukuyama writes in 1989, the end of history and the last man, explaining that this Western liberal thing that he's describing, which is taken on great a great deal of neoliberal and neoconservative aspects, is to be spread just around. We figured out politics. We figured out economics. So sometimes just spread it around the world and get everybody on the same page. And that attitude is, in general, you know, we ultra hands off the market so that it's one thing to say that you believe in free enterprise. It's another thing entirely to say that, well, we'll give cronyism a pass as well. Building out this kind of public and private partnership to where now governments and and and, and businesses so are working together. you saying that Israel became associated with that? Yeah, it became associated with the thing that was the enemy of what the left was angry about in Western society overall, outside of just kind of pure Marxist. And if we're doing the history of it, I suppose Iraq and Afghanistan would have just cemented that distinction. I think so, yeah. But there was other, the, the, the cause was taken up immediately with this, like I said, the original projects in Palestine were largely part of a global left movement. You'd have the Muslim Brotherhood that was also informing it, so it's a more complicated history. But what you do have is the solidarity already built between the left and that project that's called the Palestine Project, the Palestinian Liberation Project, whether it's Liberation, the Popular Front for Liberation in Palestine, or whether it's PLO. And you see characters like Angela Davis, for example, saying that she, so Angela Davis is a very famous uh, black feminist. Now, black feminist doesn't mean she's a black woman who's a feminist. It's a very distinct school of thought. Uh, It's the birthplace of intersectional theory, uh, where it's no longer considered possible only to think in terms of the the oppression by sex. You have to incorporate the oppression by race, but it's not sufficient to think only in terms of that either. You have to talk about how they interact with one another. This is where black feminism was coming from. So Angela Davis is perhaps the most famous of these new leftist black feminists or the most influential early ones. She gave an interview and said that she was radicalized at first by her mentor, who was the famous neo-Marxist Herbert Marcuse at UCSD in California. And then she was radicalized for the second time and more significantly when she visited Palestine. And so there's been this traffic between leftists in what was the underpinning for the woke movement and Palestine for 50 years at least. Uh, seeing that struggle through that lens, my guess, if you wanted to give, uh, give me to give the best guess that I can give, is what we said is that they saw Israel being intrinsically related to a conservative, as they saw adventurism or neoconservative and neoliberal adventurism, to have a stable, strong presence of Western values inserted in the Middle East, primarily to control the area and probably gain access to oil resources or something like this. That you know, cutting it down to the barest, most cynical bones. But on the other hand, they were already naturally in solidarity with the liberation movements that were taking place in the third world, across the third world, not just in the Arab world, while sharing philosophical commitments and interests with the broader Arab context at the time. So the strange thing, though, is that the US president is a Democrat. Uh, You know, he's often accused of being woke. He's accused of entertaining woke ideas, etc. Um, but he's been very solid on 
his support for Israel. It was kind of remarkable that in the days after the October the 7th attack, none of the usual language about uh, caution on both sides was present. He, the, it was support to an unusual degree for yeah. Israel. So, so tell us that bit. Why is it that the, as it were, center-left in the US is not infected with apparently any enthusiasm for the Palestinian cause? Well, they're caught between a rock and a hard place. Their base is 100% pro-Hamas uh, uh, vis-a-vis Palestine. Uh, but they have these deep American commitments, many of which are hangovers from a broad neoliberal regime that's stretched back for half a century or more. And they're caught between a rock and a hard place. If they come out full-throatedly for this, uh, you know, whether we want to call it Hamas specifically or Palestinian project, that's going to be a virtual electoral suicide, at least in the present day United States. However, if they don't back that, then their left flank, which is now sizable and rather incredibly powerful, especially in young people, is going to cut them. Uh, but there's just too much momentum between the relationship between Israel and the United States and the West more generally for too long for them to just abandon it all of a sudden, especially on these these terms. And yet you're not seeing protests like the one you attended here in London taking place in the U.S. Well, on some campuses, perhaps, but well, nothing like that scale. Apparently Saturday, even while we were having the one here in London, there was one of not, I think, identical scale, but, uh, you know, maybe within an order of magnitude uh, in Dallas, Texas. So there are large ones. I was even in Omaha, Nebraska about a week before. It was right after the, the massacre on the 7th. And there was a, not sizable, but there was even a, a rally there downtown in, in Omaha, Nebraska. So it is flaring up even off of the college campuses, primarily on the college campuses uh, in some high schools. But you, there was a very, very large rally in Dallas, Texas as well. Um, and the feeling of it is extraordinarily similar to the Black Lives Matter riots and protests of 2020. Well, there's all of a sudden a very large number of people. They're all chanting roughly exactly the same thing. They're trying to chant something that feels impossible to disagree with about liberation for an oppressed people. The amount of people with the the speed in which they've turned up, uh, it just has these echoes. It's not the same, but it has these echoes of the the human rights. So it's your contention that maybe some of the same people are getting enthused about the Palestinian cause that I think a few exact, years ago. Yeah, I think it's roughly the exact same cause. I mean, really, BLM is Black Lives Matter, but it could very easily stand for, and if we go backwards in history, just a little bit, Black Liberation Movement, we have the same L all over again. Uh, quite literally, that's what it was based out of, was Black Liberation. That's what brought into Black feminism, created intersectionality that gave all of the thrust to the critical race theory-driven BLM movement. So where you get a bit more controversial is that you actually see echoes in Hamas's view of the world with some of the woke ideas. Is that fair? Uh, Yeah, actually. So what are those echoes? You have this same idea that there is an oppressed minority that is being oppressed by a uh, dominant power that's almost got demiurgic control, if I might use a really fancy word. Demiurge is the you know great spiritual imprisoner of man. So what do they call Gaza? An open air prison. Everything's a prison. It's a Something's a prison. Everybody's locked down in a prison that you have to get liberation from. You're locked down in racism that you have to get liberation from. You're locked in the wrong body that you were born into and assigned to sex that you have to get liberation from. It's the exact same kind of current. I mean, you would say, though, it's kind of a different... It's it's quite a 
a stretch to think of yourself as locked in the wrong body or locked in by racism, whilst the people of Gaza genuinely are locked in. I mean, they, they can't move in any direction. I so don't, it's a little bit more literal in that it is a, It is more literal, but I don't think that that matters. The underlying mentality is that dominant powers impose a circumstance upon those that they oppress and that those that are oppressed by that power structure uh, must band together and resist by any means necessary, whether it's to seize the means of production, whether it's to dissolve the sex binary, or whether it's to, uh, I guess, drive out the influence of whether Israel or Zionist or Jews, depending on who we're talking to, I guess, from river to sea. Uh, the the mentality is the same whether the circumstances are identical or not. But woke kids on college campuses, or indeed civil servants or people in corporations, are not in favor of slaughtering innocent people. So, like, we should at least make this clear that you know the Hamas ideology seems to be in favor of murdering innocent people, whilst the woke people you're shouting about daily. Oh, no. I don't know that that's actually true. There are surprise. I mean, the reason that I do what I do today is because when I was writing the fake academic articles, we've spoken about those here on the show before ourselves. When I was writing these fake academic articles, one of the peer reviewers wrote back to me and had said in the peer review of our paper, which was that we were going to abuse kids to teach them about privilege so that they could experience you know, oppression and learn about it and all this. And we said that we'd use it, we would do this, but we'd do it with compassion, trying to be funny. And they said, you can't use compassion that might recenter the needs of the privileged kids. And we thought that that's an alarming statement. And in fact, I said that that has every undercurrent, the seeds of a genocide. Well, Franz Fanon is not some obscure character in leftist academic circles. He is kind of a pillar. There's a book that, so- What, the, the genocide of who though? This is, I've got to ask, the genocide, of who by who in the the oppressor by the oppressed which is a very set of general categories why I, why do you hear that what they say if i deny your pronouns i'm committing a trans genocide because it just justifies an answer of resistance by any means and this is why i brought up fanon and just to give you an underscore fanon is cited in a book that is an Antifa book. So Fanon's book, most famous book, or no, next most famous book was called Black Skins, White Masks. This was in the mid-50s. There's a book called Black Block, White Riot that's by, uh, that's an Antifa book. It's printed by AK Press, which is an Antifa press. I've read this book. And it refers to Franz Fanon's books, in particular, Wretched of the Earth, as dynamite in print. It is considered the ethical drive behind their program, at least in the West. And so anywhere that you have an oppressed group of people under leftist analysis, they have the unbridled right, if we follow Fanon, the first chapter of The Wretched of the Earth is concerning violence. The first sentence of that is, no matter what you call it, to summarize, he gives a long list of names and I can't repeat them in order, but whatever you call it, decolonization is always a violent phenomenon. So they justify that violence is entirely within the purview, but we always hear black genocide, trans genocide, so on and so forth. Well, I refer to this phenomenon as the iron law of woke projection. They're telling you how they think about how the world is operating. And if that's what they feel is being done to them, what would they feel is, is justifiable to do in return? Are you just making a kind of academic point that there are echoes between these? Or are you actually suggesting that there are the seeds of genocide in countries like the United States? And if you fast forward enough decades, we might see it. 
That is why I do what I do, is I saw those seeds of genocide when the peer reviewers told me in that paper, yes, put people in intentional discomfort to help them understand their position of privilege. No, you may not use compassion because it puts their needs first. I said, this: the logic of this extends. It doesn't necessarily get there in practice, but the logic of this extends in a straight line to a genocide. That there are people who, by virtue of their status in society, which in woke theories happens to be by virtue of their race or sex or often what we refer to as immutable characteristics. In the case of Palestine and Israel, what we're talking about is uh, a settler colonialist project. It's, it's national origin, geographic circumstance, political circumstance. But there are people who are oppressed and that those people who are oppressed in Fanon's words, need to reclaim their full personhood through a ritual of violence done to the people who have taken it from them. So when they say that we're going to decolonize the curriculum as the word that they've chosen to remove Shakespeare from bookshelves in universities, that's the same decolonize that appears everywhere else. I don't think this is an academic point. As a matter of fact, I think it's an esoteric use of the language, which means not that it's strange, it's that it has a meaning that the people on the inside understand, that the people on the outside won't recognize. So if someone said, you've just got too close to it, you're, you're too deep in, and that actually most of these people that you're fighting against are just benign, maybe not even that especially intelligent kids or adults or not people we need to worry about about to execute a genocide, what would your response be? Well, it's certainly not the case that they're not very intelligent because the places that it's the most fervent are on the most elite university campuses. So maybe it's true, but I doubt it's true that the students of Harvard and Yale and Columbia and uh, Stanford and Princeton and Brown and Northwestern, Cornell are stupid or enamory or But stupid. are they genocidal? James. Well, they're one of these universities, one of the ones, Cornell, I think, but it might be Columbia. They shined onto the wall, glory to our martyrs from the river to the sea, you know, resistance by any means. And we've seen them willing to commit career suicide on any of their enemies. We've seen them willing to visit violence. For example, the case where Riley Gaines went to speak at a, a university in San Francisco and they literally locked her in the room and held her for ransom and made her attempted to make her miss her flight unless she paid them money to take to, to be allowed out of the room. She was punched by, as she describes it, men wearing dresses. Uh, so the violence is there. The undercurrent of violence is there. How long does it take till it erupts in something even bigger? So, um, so you actually believe. I'm gonna. We're gonna come to Aaron in a second, but you think that the U.S. and Western countries like it are actually in the throes of what a revolution, cultural revolution, exactly like what was visited on China in the 1960s. And your response to it is to fight the ideas daily on social media and in articles and on appearances like this. Yeah, and in books and on um, public speeches and everywhere that I can to talk about the issue. Do you issue think you're winning the argument? I think. It's less clear about winning over here in the UK, uh, but in the United States, there is a movement now that is many millions strong, that is very informed. I am now quite optimistic. I watch something come up, for example, this particular conflict, which is different than some of the ones that have come up in the past for a, a wide variety of reasons. But I watch these things come up and I watch the reactions of people. It used to be, whether it was Ukraine conflict, whether it was COVID-19, whether it was BLM in 2020, 
where just such a body of the population got sucked in almost without asking questions. Who's behind it? Why are this? Why is this happening? Why is this happening this way? Why are they having that fist everywhere? That's also the same fist that was shown on Bolshevik posters in 1917. Why is this happening? Now I see this question being asked immediately, widely by tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people routinely. Everywhere I go, I hear suspicions, even from people who aren't willing to speak up, saying something is not natural about this. So I do think we're, we're I don't whether we're winning or not, I might be too early to say, but I see every indication that people are getting informed of what's really happening and what it takes to stop that without having to resort to the traditional overcorrection error, which is fascism. What dialectical political operators, to be very specific about what I mean, so this would be your Hegelians, your Marxists, and so on, what they can't accomplish through agitation from the left, they will accomplish through agitation from the right. So I'm very afraid. So if they can't punch you with the left hand, they'll punch you with the right. If we're all looking at the left hand now, you better watch out for the haymaker from the right that's coming to get you. And I think that we are likely to see an attempted uh, infusion of energy and cash and all of this into a far right movement that is right at that edge of giving in and wanting that catharsis to we're going to purge the society of woke or Muslims or whatever it is that they're angry about. And you're not worried you're contributing to that by I, being so kind of forceful on social media? Well, those people hate me. So I think I must be doing something right. Those people very vocally hate me. They've told me that they will convert me or kill me on more than one occasion. So I must be doing something to throw a wrench in their gears. So I maybe they'd also told me they're willing to use my work so long as it's useful to them, but then they'll force convert me or kill me. So I don't know. I don't think I am because I always hearken back to individual rights, property rights, the fundamental principles of the inalienable rights of life, liberty, property that are the beating heart, all of the other errors that got, you know, whether it's Locke's idea of a blank slate or whatever else that got incorporated into to, to liberalism early on, the beating heart is that we are people with inalienable rights who are who consent to be governed by lending political authority to people. So I am fearful that this thing will take off. I'm less fearful that I'm contributing to it because they they viscerally hate me. And I do call them out. I fight a two-front war virtually constantly. I do not believe in what the internet calls a netter, which is no enemies to the right. I've noticed every no enemies to the right fool will attack the... I don't like left-right exactly here, but just for the sake of argument, somebody a centimeter to the left, they'll attack, but they could be a mile to the right and you can't attack them back. And I know I've mixed my metric and imperial, but we're in, in England, so everybody can deal with that. I am worried about a fascist... Uh, uprising. But I think that the main current in the US and Canada right now is a classical liberalism. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Thank you for that, James. We've now been joined by Aaron Bastani, fresh out of a taxi from the Navarra Media offices, which has become something of a hub for the pro-Palestinian narrative here in the UK. What account would you give of why it seems to be that people on the left support Palestine and people on the right seem to be have more sympathy with Israel? What's your account of that? Well, firstly, I'd say that's quite a recent thing. So if you look at the formation of the State of Israel in 1948, one of the first people to sort of recognize it and support was the USSR at that time under the leadership of the helmsmanship, as you know the left would have said at the time, um, Joseph Stalin. Um, and there was also a predilection amongst the British establishment to actually be quite Arabist. So, um, Tory Arabism yeah, as well. Yeah, precisely. So this idea of it being left-coded to support uh, Palestine and it being the, the, the right-coded position to support Israel, not really the case. If you look at the Labour Party, really, it's interesting this debate's running through the Labour Party now because Harold Wilson, who was very much seen as a, you know, a, a centrist figurehead, an anchor for a very broad coalition, very broad coalition, far broader coalition than I think Labour could possibly be now, actually. Um, he was squarely behind Israel, squarely behind the idea of, of liberal Zionism. So clearly something shifted. Um, I would, however, say I think it's per perfectly coherent to be left wing. This, this is my view. And also to have a a critique of Israel, um, an understanding of the Nakba, which is commensurate with how um, other peoples in the global south have been treated over the last 100, 150 years. I don't think it's inexplicable. We might disagree about the conclusions there, but I think you can look, in that, look at that set of phenomena and say, okay, that, that kind of makes sense. But I think it's important to say from the start, it wasn't ever thus. So when did it shift and why do you think? Such an interesting question. I think if you're looking at the sort of micro politics of this in the UK, you probably would look at the Socialist Workers Party, um, which is a small party now, but at the time uh, it, it had a, a separate name prior to that. It was founded by a gentleman called Tony Cliff, who, if I'm not mistaken, was actually born in that part of the world. I may be wrong. So in Palestine. I believe so. And Tony Cliff um, and the SWP made the weather um, on the British left for decades, really, in terms of centering the struggle of Palestine, the Palestinians. So I think when, and again, I take the Nakba seriously, I have a very strong critique of Israel and so on. But when people say, well, why is the British left monomaniacally focused on this, not talking about Uyghurs or not talking about this or that, I'd probably say 
part of the reason why is Tony Cliff and the, and the role of the SWP. Uh, and then, of course, there is, I think, a very compelling argument, which is that, well, we were the colonial administrators of that part of the world uh, for, what, 30 years, basically. And so there is some responsibility on both the British and the French for wider dysfunction in, in West Asia. Not the Americans, but there clearly is some historic blame that needs to be put on Britain and France for not just Palestine-Israel, but border disputes all around that region, really. So why do the Israelis not get some of that sympathy, basically? what, what Why are they not considered oppressed? Uh, and why why is it that the Palestinians have kind of captured the the, the left support for who they perceive to be the oppressed mm. people? Well, you would... can make a pretty good case that the Jews have suffered oppression and worse. Yeah. I think absolutely. And I think that explains the position of the Labour Party for a very long time. And I think the facts on the ground have changed. So, you know, Israel today, 10 million people, uh, 8 million uh, Jewish Israelis, 2 million Arabs, but 10 million people, nuclear power, incredibly advanced high-tech economy, one of the world's, you know, best manufacturers of drones, one of the world's best security services, um, uh, extraterritorial core, go overseas and do extraordinary stuff, the stuff of of literal legend which finds its way into movies. So I think when you've had that for, what, 40, 50 years, it is quite hard to look at those people as victims. Now, of course, clearly, Jewish people have been victims repeatedly throughout history, particularly European history. And were very recently on October the 7th. Well, precisely. Um, but for a thousand years, you know, the, 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 the figure, the archetype of, of the Jew in the European psyche was the outsider, was literally the definition of the oppressed. But I think now, like I say, that's been somewhat inverted just because of the facts on the ground. Um, it's hard to say that this nation is oppressed when they have nuclear weapons, this extraordinary military capability, this extraordinary air force, high standard of living, and then on their doorstep is effectively an open air prison. Now we might again disagree about that definition, but clearly if you had a choice to live in Israel um, or Gaza, I think 99.9% .9 of people would say Israel. So I think that's the facts on the ground are why people wouldn't say that. What do you say to James's idea that there is something about, for example, what you just said, the open air present, there is something about this sense that Gaza and Palestine are not only oppressed, but imprisoned, that chimes with woke ideas of kind of imprisonment and liberation, that means that ultimately they give a pass to violence, such as we saw on October the 7th, and find it hard to condemn it. Because, as James put it, there is a kind of genocidal apology built into the woke left ideology. If you're on the left, I'm a Marxist, one of the center, central pillars of Marxism, if, if you think it's an empirical study of humankind, is that you have to be able to challenge your assumptions. Otherwise, it's an orthodoxy, it's a dogma, and that's, that's the worst kind of Marxism. So clearly, I think some of the assumptions, I'll talk about the British left because I'm familiar with that. I think in terms of what anti-racism means and what it looks like, were wrong, right? I think we real we realised that I think probably the last five ten years that you don't have to be brown or black to be racialised, um, discriminated against, treated objectionably. Now that was clearly obvious to anybody who was going through Buchenwald or you know um, Auschwitz in 1944-45, as many Brits did or Americans did or Russians did. But I think some of those lessons have been. Unlearned. And again, it's about an outgrowth of the facts on the ground. In our own society, people that struggle the most in terms of socioeconomics um, and how that aligns with race or ethnic background 
they, they don't seem to be Jewish. What you're saying is actually, yes, the left got it wrong. They allowed themselves to become too critical of Israel. And now there's an adjustment that No, I would say I would I would delimit criticism of Israel from um, its treatment of Jewish people. So for instance, I think these are two discrete questions, which, you know, they, there is some sort of current going both ways, which is to say, I think say five, ten years ago, if you were to say um, Jewish people are subject to racism in this country, I think most people would say this is ridiculous. Don't be silly. Um, and it, they certainly wouldn't see it as akin to black people or brown people suffering from racism. And I think if you look, I don't at, think they'd say that right now. Well, that's the thing. So I think if you look at the, well, that's partly because of the data, right? In terms of um, sentencing um, and your ethnic background, we know that the numbers really are very much against people of African, Afro-Caribbean heritage. However, and this really came home to me with the, the Dagestan episode the other day in the airport, which is when you're looking at hatred, which is so old, so trans-historical. I think that's a very dangerous thing to do. Oh, well, people don't discriminate against Jewish people when they're hiring. Oh, well, they can go to the LSE. Oh, well, you know, actually, then they're no less likely to own a home, be an owner-occupier than any other ethnic demographic. I think that's very dangerous because clearly, as Europeans, this has been with us for a very long time, so we have to be alert to it. That's where I think the left went wrong. So do you think it that some of the students in US campuses or some of the people that were flowing over the bridges in London in recent days during those huge protests are blind to their biases and that somehow that the recent version of, of what it means to be a good leftist has mm. helped them. Well, I don't know. You'd have to take each but you have to take each person on their on their merits, right? Because there may be somebody who does something which they don't agree with because people behave differently in crowds and whatnot. I think there, there clearly will be some How did you feel when you saw those protests? I mean maybe you had them. No, I wasn't actually. My, um, I had uh, my wife's pregnant, so would you have been? We had NCT class, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, of course, I would be. And I think there were many. This is what frustrates me: is there are many good, decent, honourable people there, who, um, who are nowhere resemble the caricature being made of them. There's polling on this. So, if would you, you have at- attended the Israel vigil? That was um, uh, asking for the hostages to be returned. Showing I, solidarity I mean, I, but that's because I'm a journalist. I mean, I possibly would have, yeah, because it's of, it's of interest to me professionally, yeah. I mean, what's happened, I will say, since this, you know... So, look, let's talk about some things that have happened which I don't agree with. When Sheffield Council was putting the Israeli flag over their building for a day after 1,400 people died, seems quite a common-sense thing to do for me. And people trying to take it down, I, I don't quite understand that. That seems to be quite distasteful. 1,400 people have died... You might hate the Israeli state, but just let it fly for a day. What's the problem? It's going to be gone next week. What's the issue? Stuff like that I didn't quite understand. Or there was an Iranian man who had the Israeli flag in central London with the protest. Um, and he was people, attacked. And he was attacked. He was being chased down. And, you know, the police intervened, and, and fortunately he was okay. Um, why? But my worry is that all of a sudden people will try and delegitimize those on the protest who basically represent mainstream opinion with regards to something like a ceasefire. 76% of the British public support a ceasefire. And that's normal people. That's normies who might not be passionately invested in it. But if you ask them their opinion, they say, we back a ceasefire. This is, I saw some pictures on TikTok. It looks awful. That's horrendous. And so I think if you're trying to say that anybody who has that opinion is a terrorist sympathizer or an apologist for Hamas, I think you're going to um, do a great disservice to millions of your compatriots. And I think that's a really dangerous place to be in. So James, when you hear Aaron, you've been, you're really concerned by this. You you see this, the, the strength of feeling that's being expressed in 
favor of Palestine is somehow a symptom of what you think is really a, quite a dangerous movement in our societies across the West. Hearing Aaron, does he reassure you? Do you think maybe it's not so bad after all, or, or is he himself deluded? It is a bit reassuring to hear this level of thoughtfulness from a from a, an a openly declared Marxist here in Britain. What I'm worried about primarily is his behavior, like I said, uh, on these college campuses and in, in, in some of these demonstrations. But I don't think the majority of that protest was woke. But the majority of what's happening on Columbia University campus or Yale or Harvard, maybe, I don't know, Oxford or Cambridge, I don't know what's going on over here in the universities, that's woke. That's different. And I am extremely concerned about the woke phenomenon. Uh, and when you see some of these, again, like I mentioned earlier, uh, slogans like by uh, resistance is not terrorism and by any means necessary, and then glory to our martyrs, put up by projector on the outside wall of a building at an elite American university with the big protest happening where you're seeing kind of school after school where they are barricading Jews into rooms or going on Jew hunts and things like this that these videos have been going on. Uh, social media, of course, you always have to ask how much of this is representative, how much of it's legitimate, how much of it's propaganda. And you, but you think, but you think that some of the energy for that comes a bit like the woke phenomenon from this idea that the oppressor can use any means to defeat. Sorry, the oppressed, the oppressed can use any means to defeat the oppressor up to and including violence. I think that that's the legacy of Fanon and, and Said and post-colonial theory as it's brought into the intersectional aspect of woke. Yeah, and I think that that was the energy behind the. Uh, property damage and occasional deaths that occurred under Black Lives Matter through 2020 and into 2021 to some degree. Um, that Aaron, what do, you, what do you think of that concept that somehow the current version of this these woke ideas pretty much allows the oppressed to do whatever they like in terms of defeating the oppressed? I think actually like they have quite a realistic, and this is from a small C conservative point of view, they have quite a realistic view of politics. They view politics as the continuation of violence by other means, which is not an, that's not an outrageous thing to say. That is a very conservative definition of politics. And how do you, of course, how do you suppress, and we can talk about Freud and civilizationist discontents, how do you suppress those impulses and, and, and make sure they're mediated in a civilized way that's commensurate with liberal democratic society? That's a question we all have to try and answer. But I think that there are, the idea of what politics is isn't particularly inaccurate. I mean, that, that is what it is. Um, and I think um, that doesn't mean you think violence is legitimate, but you have to understand that, for instance, a political settlement such as is the case with Israel-Palestine, of course, is predicated on violence. It's predicated on a kind of structural violence that something like Fanon would be very you know, eager to highlight. The question is, politically, how do you change that? Now, you're saying, I think this is probably quite a fair assessment, is that their theory of change is predicated upon deploying violence. Um, and I think that's that's an interesting, it's an interesting one. I suppose from a Western perspective, what's the most useful thing that somebody in the West can do for Palestinians? I suspect it's not hounding Jewish people or pulling down Israeli flags or saying racist anti-Semitic chanting. Um, so for me, obviously, a lot of that stuff could, should just be obviously condemned. And I suppose the question is, you're saying that Jewish students are being hounded through university libraries or whatever. What I don't understand is this doesn't need to be a moral panic. That's illegal. Where are the police? Why aren't people being arrested? You know, this shouldn't be the topic of a conversation on social media or a hashtag or, why, oh my God. Why aren't they being have you arrested? Seen, well, I don't know. That's a matter of the police, isn't it? But that's, that's, that's my point. Or friends, you have a potential part answer. It's, it's a separate issue. Yeah. But I think they, that there's some isomorphism. So I mentioned earlier my friend Riley Gaines, who spoke 
she just went to speak. She wasn't doing anything particularly provocative. She didn't go out. She didn't throw any punches. She didn't try to like rattle anybody. Or she, she didn't do anything even beyond the level of provocation of giving a public talk at a university in San Francisco. And she was locked into a room and barricaded in. Well, it turns out she was also barricaded in with San Francisco police. And there they are with the guns on their hip and the whole thing. And they're being held hostage. And I mean, literally held, not, this isn't a metaphor. They were saying, give us money, give us ransom, or we won't let you go. Which means they were being held hostage in this room. And she went to a police officer and said, you know, can't you do something about this? And he said, we can't because our department has to be seen as in solidarity with these people. And so this, this issue of solidarity creating that you say this is illegal but if it's de jure illegal, but de facto not illegal because there's an ethos of solidarity that suppresses the law under a, a doctrine of liberating tolerance, then in, in effect, it's not illegal. And it's already transgressed from the point of being within control to out of control if you're seeing you know, people being barricaded in, these you know, young Jewish students likely fearing for their lives, whether that was a legitimate fear or not. Certainly fearing violence, of course, that's yeah. obvious, yeah. So, Do you uh, think that's true? Do you think the British police are afraid to intervene because they're worried about showing solidarity? No, with I, well, I, I, I don't know. I don't know the case in the United States. But right, that, was a, that was San Francisco specific. Yeah. No, no, I'm talking about, it, it, sounds, no, it sounds entirely you know, plausible and coherent, and that's what you've heard. But I, I think with regards to the UK, I'm going to defend the police for once because I think you know, that's very unusual. People on process would say, they're saying they'll arrest me for having a St. George's flag, but that guy over there has a Shahada flag and he's fine. Of course, what nobody mentions is the next day that person is picked up and arrested and charged, right? And often is the case with protest policing in this country and the British police has had a long and storied experience of how to do protest. What they generally do is observe, monitor, collect data, and you'll be arrested a day and or two later. How many arrests there have been? Quite a few. So, for instance, the, so for instance, the the on the second demonstration, the very first arrest was, I've been told, was somebody from a spotter card, i.e., from the previous week's protest. That was the very first person arrested, and that's a very common way of dealing with these things. So, what you'll see in social media is this guy with the Saint George Cross. He's being threatened with arrest. Nothing happens to him. I mean, you probably saw this. Nothing happens to him. I thought that was daft personally, but nothing happens to him. This guy with a Shahada flag, and he's and he's fine. Well, actually, no. The reality is that person's gone away about their business, and this person's been arrested and charged. So, I think again that speaks to a certain kind of moral panic. I have seen the police say and do certain things which I disagree with, where they say, we've seen these people say this and it's fine. I think jihad, for instance, saying you're calling for jihad in a protest is a, is a legally gray area. You need to protect people's rights to free speech. But the What's way- gray area about jihad? Well, no, if somebody says, if someone sings onward Christian soldiers marching out to war in their school assembly, right, a very famous song, nobody's going to say this person is literally calling for a religious war. So clearly, when we talk about language, it has to be context specific. In that kind of context, I think it's problematic quite clearly. So uh, there have been things like that, which I'm not quite sure about. Or another one was the chant um, about... Um, From the river to the sea. No, 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 there was a, no, 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 another one where somebody said to me, do you accept this as anti-Zionist? I said, no, it's anti-Semitic, which is about this battle in uh, Medina and, you know, they killed the Jews and so on in 600 and God knows what AD. Um, if somebody sings something like that, again, that seems to me incitement to racial hatred. That seems to be violent, racialized speech. So I, I think the police sometimes have a hard job of it because of social media, but then there have been other moments where I just think, you're not really doing your job there. Um, and they don't seem to be taking it very seriously. And finally, I'll finish with this, you know, you see high profile football matches, you may be not familiar with this English soccer match. Somebody's 
holding up a phone with a young football fan who's died recently. You know, the police track that person down. Two days later, they're charged, blah, 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 blah. Okay, what they've done is awful. I don't even know if it's illegal, frankly. But the resources poured into that because it's trending on social media compared to quite clearly problematic, if not outright illegal speech acts, which get far less attention. So I think it's a mixed bag with the police, but it sounds like it's different in the US. I got to just ask one more time, because I don't feel we got a full answer from mm. you, of what your response is to James's kind of central claim, which is that there is something around these contemporary left progressive ideas that so kind of re- deifies the oppressed uh, and supports the oppressed to, with such intensity against the perceived oppressor mm. that it leads them to support people like Hamas ultimately and turn a weird blind eye to acts of horrific violence and just focus all of their energy on whoever is perceived to be the oppressor. What do you say to that? Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. So I would say, particularly with regards to Palestine, because you've got so little critique of the other side, so illegal settlements or Zippy Hatebele saying something, they would say, well, you haven't condemned illegal settlements. Why should I condemn Hamas? I think that's one part of it. Not, not, not answering your question, but I think that's one part of it. They don't see fair brokers and legacy media holding both sides accountable, so why should I? And then on this key point um, about um, the, the identity politics aspect of it, I think it's a much bigger issue in the US than here, myself, I think. I mean, you might think it's here. I think the protests are bigger here. Yeah, but I think the protests here are partly an outgrowth of... We've, we've had a very anti, a strong anti-war sentiment in this country really since 2003 in the Iraq war. That's just a fact. Um, and you have all the organizations, you have the same individuals, the same networks who were able to coordinate protests quite um, quite, quite quickly. On top of that, you have a, a large Muslim working class in London. On top of that, you have graduates who, yeah, maybe hold some of these values, others don't. On top of that, you have a, a, a pretty strong series of trade unions, communication workers union, the RMT, who've always cared about foreign policy issues. You know, that could have been Cuba 40 years ago. So I think it's a bit more complicated than that. I think it's one part of the picture, but I think in the in the US, it's probably a little bit different. And I think that the, the really important thing for me in this country is the participation, probably for the first time for many of these people, of young Muslims. And my worry is we have to have legal democratic means of participating in the political process um, and mediating disagreement. Right. If you don't do that, you store up big problems for your society. So I think, in a way, it should be it should be good. It should be viewed as good. We should be happy that these young Muslims sure. are protesting. I think so. They are part of public life. Vincent. Partly, and I think you know Peter Hitchens said something about free speech, which I just have to agree with. He's, I want you to say the things you believe, because if you don't, then I won't know what you're saying and what you think. And I think it's good for people that disagree with some of the sentiments out in London. You might not like them, but it's a downside bet. You know that. X number of people in our society hold those views, than then not, you know, articulating them in the first place. So uh, to finish and to get to the core of what you're saying, on the identity politics stuff, I think it's a lot more significant in the US. And what I would say is, because I'm on the left, so I've seen people go through that journey. As people get older, you know, once they hit 30, they start having kids, that stuff really does tone down. I mean, I don't know what your experience is in the US, but my, my engagement with people like that, with those kinds of politics, not always, but it tends to be very time limited just because of the necessities of adulthood. And, you know, the, ze- the zealotry that you might have as a younger person dies down. You grow out of it, James. So you've heard it. Well, it, it's complicated, but generally, yes. 
Um, generally, yes. The responsibilities of life, I think, is is one of the big mediators. What, what I see in the left, in the in the in, in the U.S., is that who's showing up to not these specific Israel Palestine that will take that off the table, but the general kind of, you know, oh no, Moms for Liberty is having a, a a meeting somewhere, so let's show up in the parking lot and protest hate in our community or whatever. Who shows up? It's a contingent of college-aged people, which is what you would expect, and then it's kind of the if I might be so bold, the boomers who were radicals in the 60s who are still doing it and their children are cats now, but they've never left their, uh, maybe they do have grandkids and maybe they don't, but they've left that behind. The, the big, there's this big gulf in the middle where the middle-aged people, 30s and 40s and even 50s, are much less, they're, they're present, but in very small numbers, relatively speaking. Uh, I don't know what happens with as far as the sentiments go in that middle group because they tend not to be there. Uh, the exception to that rule is what a lot of times the conservatives on uh, in America call call the the suburban wine moms. So these are moms that are in their 30s and 40s who are so desperate to signal their inclusion that they're dragging their kids through who knows what, usually sexual identity politics more than race identity politics, but some of both. I'd like to end on this question of what should be allowed. Because earlier when you were talking, you were saying that some of these statements were, well, I think you said they were problematic, troublesome. Should they be illegal? Should it be legal, for example, to say from the river to the sea, Palestine shall be free. I mean, being an American, I'm not fully what you might call a free speech absolutist, which kind of gets into the weeds with, you know, incitement and these other things. Uh, but uh, no, it shouldn't be illegal. And I agree with the point raised by Hitchens, which is I, I want to know what people believe. I want to know who believes what. I want to hear what they, they are saying. And uh, I want to be able to have the opportunity for us to intervene in that, not through the law, but through political debate, discussion, persuasion, the usual techniques. Of Should it be illegal to say you support Hamas, do you think? Um, this is a complicated issue. Say, for example, if it's designated as a terrorist organization and you declare your, and of course there's a whole political thing to what's declared as a terror. I'm, I'm declared as a ex right-wing extremist, which is actually preposterous by the Southern Poverty Law Center in the United States, which is not a governmental entity, but the government does look at that and take it far more seriously than it should. So there is the problem of illegitimately classifying something as a terrorist organization. But let's, for the sake of argument, claim that Hamas is designated legitimately as a terrorist organization. Declaring support, open support for a terrorist organization is a different thing from declaring open support for a political organization. Well, this is the thing is, is, where's the line of protected speech? Well, certainly you can't have incitement to violence and you can't have threats. Like I can mouth off to you all I want, but I can't say I'm going to hit you. Yeah. Uh, and all of a sudden, and I don't know what, I know you guys have slightly different free speech rules than we have here or than we have in the U.S. So in the U.S., I have no right to tell you I'm going to break your nose, right? Unless I'm doing it in this, this way, uh, in the minute. At that point, you are fully justified, literally, I think, in shooting me. Uh, in most states, once there's an imminent threat. When you start to declare open uh, affiliation or support for, support and affiliation are actually different too, for a terrorist organization, um, illegal is probably, in the sense of immediately illegal, like go round you up for your speech or arrest you for your speech, uh, probably not, but it, I would be uh, very hesitant to say that we shouldn't 
that the law enforcement shouldn't open a file on you and start figuring out what what that leads to. Have you been surprised by how many of the nominal free speech warriors on the political right, when faced with this particular controversy, suddenly seem to be very keen to lock people up, ban particular forms of expression, in some commentators' case, evict them from the country, you know, rescind their citizenship? Has that surprised you? No. Um, The pressures that uh, psychological and social pressures, which you were even referencing, where you feel like you have no options, where you feel like, and whether it's legitimately or through propaganda, that the law doesn't resolve the conflicts for you, builds a pressure up that eventually causes people to start to demand extreme solutions. I think that this has been a problem on the woke left in particular for a while, uh, where they have started to demand very extreme, literally that's the word, is demand, very extreme solutions. We demand that the campus reorganize itself if it's a campus issue, completely to satisfy our wins. A lot of these people are people who you might normally consider on your side on you know, in a Twitter fight or something. You know, these are people who are been outraged about their curtailments to freedom of speech on trans, on COVID, on so many other issues. And now this one, they hear people they don't like saying things they don't like, they want to shut it down. So I don't want to be this guy, but I just want to point out that these people are not on my side. I've been very vocal that they're not on my side. I'll grant it and make some argument in a minute, but I fight a two-front war every day. I fear both a radical left and the radicalized right that will respond to it. And I fear both of those almost at this point in equal measure. I am very concerned of a fascist response. I'm very concerned of that gaining momentum and the desperation. Very, very concerned about that. And I'm not at all surprised to see in this moment of something that's so emotional for people that taps, you know, you're talking about 1,400 dead that t- by a surprise attack in some stuff quite brutal, that that taps deep into an emotional response of, oh my God, we have to stop this by any means. I don't sympathize with that outside of, you know, recognizing where it comes from, but I very much worry that it's easy to channel that into a uh, reaction that then just perpetuates kind of this escalating left-right dynamic that eventually spirals out of control and could threaten to break civil society. Aaron, have you you been... Surprised by what I just said, by by oh. the, the degree to which people who were you thought of as free speechers turned out not to be. Yeah, it seems very um, selective, isn't it? Where 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 free speech is meant to apply. Just to be clear, if you think that the only people that should have free speech are those who agree with you, or the people that deserve freedom of assembly would be those you would personally assemble with, that's pointless. If you're not extending those rights to people you disagree with, they literally have no value. Um, I get the point about, look, it's obviously been a really horrific um, series of events uh, stretching out now over the best part of a month, but that's precisely when you need to uphold your principles the most. You know, people before the First World War, you had had pacifists, you had people who were against war, left, right and centre. But the minute that the Kaiser goes into Belgium, all that, you know, drops um, and Europeans engage in a suicidal war, frankly, for four years, which should never have happened. Um, and it's one of the great tragedies of humanity that it did happen. So I think it's precisely then that um, adults need to actually, call, you know, uh, call upon these principles. And I think that free speech is so, so, so important. I know it's important, particularly as somebody on the left, right? Because I've, I've seen what happens where you do have, and it is a tendency of radical politics, left or right, to look in, 
um, um, purism. You want the smallest possible number of people. And like you say, maximalist political ambitions. Right? If you don't have the maximalist position on this, you're awful. You're, by virtue of not adopting that, the enemy. Well, hold on, I'm 80% I'm of the way with you. So it's, it's having seen some of those tendencies. I don't think it's quite as bad here as it is in the US. Some of those tendencies up close and, and personal, literally personal. Um, that's why I have such a great respect and reverence for free speech. And I think if you don't, and we, look, this is really, I hate to borrow a gendered term, but this is sorting the men from the boys as far as I'm concerned with regards to free speech and your commitment to it. And I have the profoundest respect for people on the right who are still saying the same things they were a month ago. Um, but yeah, it, it's a boring English term. People are showing their asses on it, you know. So, so we're agreeing on this. Why are people in the United States, the UK, why do they care about this conflict in West Asia? And I think here's an important point of difference between the two, because actually, and I think the right is really missing a trick on this, is that we could see 2.5 million Gazans displaced. We, we could, you know, there's, 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 there's talk of they might go to Sinai, there might be a deal. Egypt has been quite open, according to the Financial Times, they would want a significant number of those people going to Europe. And, and I find it strange that given European publics care so much about um, refugees, they, they clearly do, you know, look at any country's, you know, European election results over the last 15 years, quite obvious. And yet conservative politicians in this country are cheering on the potential displacement of 2.5 million people in Gaza, and many of those people maybe will come to, to, to Europe. It clearly should be, if you, if you care about that, not having huge numbers of refugees coming into this continent, it clearly should be foremost in your thoughts to minimize displaced people in your near abroad. And um, we have a very recent experience of this, which is Libya in 2015. Um, 1.5, I think, well, the, the vast majority of 1.5 million people who entered Europe that year as a part of the refugee crisis, they came from Libya. And what did we do with regards to the Libyan regime several years before? We decapitated it. And so I, I, I still think it's incredible, really, in 2023, that the right in Britain isn't drawing the dots between our foreign policy, which often leads to instability somewhere like Libya, and the fact that millions of people are coming over here. You know, they say, we don't want any refugees. But yeah, that's absolutely fine if you want to displace 2.5 million Gazans. There's clearly a causal relationship between those two things. I find it remarkable conservatives aren't alive to that. Will you allowed to that? Uh, yeah, I actually don't think that that's a bad point at all. And if I might do one in turn, what I see is the left, to turn your phrase of missing a trick, is that it's very clear that Israel has at least claimed that their enemy is not Palestine or Palestinians, but Hamas. And there is another solution other than merely ceasefire, which is, well, what about the Hamas leadership? What are the Palestinians doing to, to rectify that situation? You never hear the left here in the West asking about that question. Well, is Hamas distinct from Palestine or is it the single cause of liberation with Hamas as its leadership? Is that a legitimate leadership role? Is that legitimized by Fanon or whoever else? Mm. What is it philosophically that's preventing them from being able to make the distinction that I think not every, but many people to the right of center are making that Hamas is a distinct organization with a charter that's very clear about its intentions with a very clear philosophy from this broader context of 2.5 million people, say, in Gaza, uh, I don't know what the solution is in practice. Do they try to help the Israelis find the terrorists, so to speak, and round them up? But just as far as uh, something I, I, I see the other side, the left side, lacking some purposecacity on the issue, that that's a point where I, I'm curious as to, especially with the woke left, is just this completely bulldozed, unnuanced 
territory. See, that argument would have a lot more water if you weren't seeing illegal settlements in the West Bank, if you weren't seeing people being killed in the West Bank, not in the same numbers as Gaza, but we have seen people being killed in the West Bank because the Palestinian Authority runs the West Bank, not Hamas. The Palestinian Authority recognised Israel. They, well, the PLO recognised Israel in, in the Oslo Accords. And every day since that recognition, there have been illegal settlements into the West Bank. So if you had a situation where Israel was treating the West Bank positively, no illegal settlements, um, then I think that argument would be a very strong one, right? Well, look, we treat these guys perfectly well because the Palestinian Authority is in charge. Where Hamas is in charge, there are problems. That's because of Hamas. That'd be a very logical, compelling argument. But the West Bank isn't treated particularly well. So, but, you know, I, I, I wish it was. We've done a lot of agreeing. We gentlemen. could talk about Trump in this regard then, because Trump uh -oh. did bring at least, you know, the Abraham Accords and some peace to the region, some stability for a time. What do you think of that? Well, it's interesting, isn't it, that I think with regards to foreign policy, I think Joe Biden's been an absolute disaster. I have. <laughs> and I, it's really interesting. I mean, he's actually, I mean, we probably disagree on the domestic economy stuff, but he's, he's if you look at, you know, US growth, you know, very positive. The, the economic figures are very good right now, um, which people, I think, in 2020, it was hard to foresee with COVID. But then on foreign policy, just a complete disaster. Think Trump was better. There's an argument there, right? I mean, I, I, if I was an American, I wouldn't, I wouldn't vote uh, the forthcoming election. I wouldn't vote. If I was in a swing state and there was a, a good Democrat running, maybe. But I, the idea that, oh, the left has to get behind Biden. Yeah. I mean, look at the foreign policy outcomes. This is crazy. Like, the response to 9-11, you can argue, accelerated the decline of American empire quite emphatically. But equally, like, that's understandable because there was an attack on, you know, the homeland. But the missteps by Biden are just kind of inexplicable, really. We're going to leave it there for now. Uh, thanks to Aaron Bastani and James Lindsay. An unusual and perhaps surprising amount of agreement there. James Lindsay and Aaron Bastani are not people you would necessarily think would be singing from the same political hymn sheet. But apparently we agree on a lot. So we're just going to go off and have a beer together and sing Kumbaya. In the meantime, thanks to you for joining and thanks to our guests. This was Unheard. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.